Hi there. Welcome back to The Fray. This is our 10th episode in the ongoing series about French mathematician Évariste Galois. I've decided to give this episode a title. It's Alea Jacta Est, which I'm not sure if you pronounce the J in Latin. Jacta Est, which we'll discuss what it means here in the episode. So I welcome you. So if this is uh, the first episode you're listening to, welcome. If you want to get to the beginning of this story, feel free to go ahead and start back at episode one. No matter how you got here, I'm glad you're here. So join me as we enter the fray. Cold January day in 49 BC, Julius Caesar sits astride his most trusted steed, a horse named Genitor, in honor of his father. But the horse did have another name, a more affectionate nickname, as Caesar referred to his favorite mount as Toes. This was because the horse had what appeared to be human feet. A physical deformity caused the horse to have three fingers on each leg instead of hooves. For some reason, Caesar chose to see this not as a hindrance, but as an omen of luck. It turned out, like many of the choices that Caesar made, to be a good decision, as toes would carry him through thick and thin, for over ten years of almost constant movement and in many cases open hand-to-hand -hand combat, all the way to conquering one of the most populated, most fecund areas in the entire world. That being the area heretofore to be known as Gaul. Now the older textbooks state that Caesar conquered Gaul, more recent historians tend to throw out terms like genocide and war criminal when discussing Caesar and his time spent north of Rome. There is no denying the horrific brutality, the cold-blooded savagery that Caesar perpetrated on the various tribes that are lumped under the term Gaul. No matter how you look at it, he did it all while riding his trusty toes, his living, breathing good luck charm. Caesar obviously knew that he had the gift horse, and he took full advantage of it. Yet despite all that he had won, Caesar was not a happy guy. The reason he and a couple hundred or so of his most trusted soldiers were pausing at this, well, the Rubicon is more, more of a creek than a river, I guess, and the reason they were pausing there is that they were about to break the law. Now, it's not a small infraction like speeding or even cheating on your taxes, but something that would put everything that he and his men had worked so diligently for in the past decade or so, on the line. By choosing this course of action, they would be putting at risk everything with no true sense that they would be successful with such a steep wager. Now, the specific reason for the pause at the side of the Rubicon is that Roman law actually stated a general of a standing army cannot get any closer under any circumstances. They must wait to be decommissioned and in turn dismiss their army before they can return to Rome proper. You know, for an ancient city, Rome was an extremely poorly defended place. Like a town in the Old West, where all visitors were asked to turn over their guns when they got to town, Rome asked the same of its inhabitants. And inside the city, there was really no weaponry to speak of. And this is the way the Romans dealt with the threat of military coups. So Caesar, Toes, and the rest of his men waited. Their motive for this march on Rome was a self-serving one. 
Caesar's enemies were ready to arrest him on various crimes, including their version of war crimes tribunals. The soon-to-be dictator felt he was justified in his actions and would not stand anything less than for honors and triumphs. Diplomacy between these two factions failed, and so on that cold winter morning on the banks of that nondescript stream, Caesar decided, in words oft-quoted and more often misquoted, he allegedly said, Elea yacta est, which can be translated as luck is cast, which makes sense considering how much Caesar relied on luck. He was bestrode a living, breathing, four-legged, twelve-toed lucky charm, after all. Now, some others like to offer a bit more dramatic translation of those words. Now, Colleen McCullough, in her sweeping epic First Man in Rome series, makes the argument that Caesar would have gone with something like, let the dice fly. Now, she wrote in her notes to one of her novels that she felt that Caesar was such an optimist that he would see his attitude as having an effect on what was going to transpire sort of a fake-it-till-you-make-it type situation. Or maybe he was an early adherent to the secret. Now, in any event, Colleen, who was always a little bit more of a fanboy than a historian, so she can be forgiven her fawning over Gaius Julius. Now, the most popular translation of Elea Yacta Est is, of course, the die is cast. Most of the time, this line is delivered in a somber way, maybe with a little annoyance and a dash of trepidation thrown in. I mean, it was, after all, an all-in move, and those tend to make someone a tad more introspective, even someone like Caesar. Now, I like to think he was just talking to toes, you know, as an alternative to these other theories. The horse was, after all, the embodiment of Caesar's luck. This type of animal luck connection is not just a Caesar thing. All throughout the annals of Roman history, there are stories of guardian waterfowl, miniature albino deer, and a veritable arc of other animals that were the good luck charm, or in some cases, the bad luck talisman of some battle or triumph or general. So maybe Caesar was just stroking his lucky charm when he said those fateful words, you know, like we all do when we're loving up to our favorite pet, right? Now, with this sweet little scene by the creek, and talk about being a fanboy, right? We are going to do our best to say goodbye to Julius and Toes. Their battles will continue through a civil war that will introduce us to folks like Pompey the Great, Cicero, Cleopatra, Brutus, and a precocious teenager named Octavius, who would change his name once he was crowned Rome's first emperor. It is such a great story, but alas, we are to be following a different one. The story to understanding the life and times of a French mathematician who lived for only 20 short years, almost 2,000 years from that tiny river north of Rome. To accomplish this task, to understand the fascinating life and mind of Évariste Galois, we have traveled far and wide. It has all been in an attempt to really get a grasp on such a complex set of contradictions that defined Galois' world. We started this journey on the mathematical side of things with a deep dive into the history of the equation. Those are episodes one through seven in this series. It wraps up a generation or so before Galois was born. My hope is for me to have the best understanding I could of the math-obsessed Evariste. It is obvious that I am no mathematician, so I approach the subject historically. And while I am no historian, at least I can grasp the conceptual framework of something by investigating how it came to be. So that added up to seven episodes that, for me, got me close to understanding the general concepts that Galois was playing with, not mathematically, of course, but culturally, historically. 
This is a life and a mind that has fascinated mathematicians and historians for centuries. What I find most interesting, and is probably why this subject is taking so long, is that this person, Galois, has inspired a whole mythology, a story that is at once too crazy to be true and too amazing to be ignored. But very few of the fans of Galois can really make heads or tails of Galois as a person. Just like the world of mathematics and politics that Galois had to deal with, a world in which he was bullied, antagonized, then ignored, and then eventually left for dead with a bullet lodged in his gut, slowly bleeding out, his memory is being treated in a similar fashion. Whether they aim to glorify or demystify most of the accounts of Galois' life and death and effect on the world, they try and wrap him up into a quick and easy story about insanity and violence and the inevitable end results of such a volatile concoction. Very few try to understand the deeply rooted reasons behind the world of Galois. But lucky listener, you are traveling with me deep into a story that rarely has ever been told. What were the events, culture, and ideas of the world that Galois inhabited? Why were they, the events, culture, and ideas, that way in the first place? A time and place that provided two very conflicting worlds for Everiste to inhabit. He was exposed to a world of mathematics that was on the precipice of evolving into the complex, effective, and ubiquitous thing that we call today modern mathematics. It was also a place that was at the epicenter of one of the world's greatest and longest battles for emancipation, a boiling cauldron of political strife and horror, reigns of terror, kings, popes, emperors, a land war in Asia, a madman's laboratory that has operated throughout history, mixing and stirring up chaos. The 1820s France version of this madman's lab was particularly powerful and unstable, and Evariste Gawa became, in very short order, one of the most volatile substances in the entire country, so much so that a story still reverberates down through history. Evariste, more than most, actually there probably isn't a more extreme example that I can think of, maybe Pythagoras, who, you know, again, some assert never existed. But, I mean, Galois exploded into the world of math and the political scene of Paris in the 1820s. I mean, he was expelled from school, joined a militia. His father committed suicide. Then he publicly threatened the king's life. He went to prison, then went back to prison, and then finally died in a duel all in the span of less than five years. All the while, even while he was in prison, he worked on his math. He submitted papers to prestigious journals and was actually published in some. In between stints in the pokey, he threw up a shingle and offered lectures on mathematics right there on the street and tutored colleagues in the finer points of his theories. All the while embracing a life that would be at best called chaotic. So what was the allure of each of the competing passions of Galois? How was he able to keep up both with such reckless abandon? Now, by going back to the beginning with equations, I was able to understand the unfolding of their scope and power. They are old, effective, and they evolve. Galois was someone who helped move the evolution along, in his case, by leaps and bounds, for he is a truly evolutionary catalyst, at least I think so. But he was always part of an ongoing process. He stood on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. He was just a bigger giant than most. Mathematically, all that is left to tell is the actual story of Galois and his theories. But what about the other part of the story, the political part? You know, the beliefs that will actually lead to that ill-fated duel to the death? I mean, you can believe that the answer to this question has led me all the way back to 30,000 years before this, to when human civilization first hit Western Europe? Now, this is because it's complicated to try and understand the world of 1820s France, right? So complex that I decided to approach understanding it the same way I attempted to make sense of equations. I looked at history. 
So starting in episode eight, where we join the folks who were creating comic books on the walls of caves, this investigation has led us to this point, the northern edge of the Rubicon, about to say farewell to Julius and his fellow Romans. Of course, the term Roman will still be a reference and some names will be dropped, but our quarry is not Rome anymore, but the world they had just all but obliterated. That, of course, would be Gaul. So far into our deep dive to understand the real Everiste Galois, the Romans have filled up a lot of that history. The Romans are most certainly the boogeyman of this story, as Caesar contemplates the last factors in his equation that will lead him to let the dice fly, he will leave behind him in the wake one of the most total and complete victories over an indigenous people in recorded history. There are really no words to describe what the actual world of the Gauls must have looked like at this point. A wasteland filled with suffering and misery is just a start. Overall, the biggest feeling would possibly be one of emptiness. What was once a vibrant, if uncouth, culture was rendered moot, emasculated to the point that there would be almost a millennia that would pass before any semblance of civic pride could be sensed from the people of that land. It was a place of silence and a place of fear, a place where all hope is lost, a place that is defined as barely a life worth living. It recalls the quote attributed to a Caledonian war chief named Calgacus in what is now Scotland. He said of the Romans about a century or so after Caesar was assassinated, he said of them, quote, to ravage, to slaughter, to usurp under false titles they call empire, and where they make a desert, they call it peace. At this point, Gaul was indeed a desert, but it was not, despite what one would come to expect from over a decade of genocidal warfare, actually deserted. In fact, even though some estimate over 10 million people were slaughtered, burned, beaten, starved, and tortured to death by Caesar, there were still a large population of people living in what is now Gaul. They were, of course, the Gallic allies of Caesar. They got a lot of those cushy positions once Caesar turned his attention back to Rome. But there were many subjugated tribes that still called it home. At this point in history, Rome was actually still a republic in name. It had a senate, elections. It was in many ways a lot like our political system today. Their days of empire are still decades away, but in practice, they are pretty much approaching the zenith of their powers. This meant stuff like taxes, military drafts, laws, trade, roads, organized religion, and lots and lots of slaves. Now, Caesar had carved up Gaul for his own selfish ambition. It also happened to greatly expand the Roman franchise portfolio. At this point in history, and for a very long time, in some ways, even to this day, the place called Gaul, a large part of which will someday be called France, began to take its final form, its everlasting geographic and cultural shape, the crucial foundation of Everiste's, Galois' chaotic world. And this is why today I started with the crossing of the Rubicon, not just to say goodbye to Caesar, but to once again focus on his statement, Alea Jacta Est. For if you go with the most popular translation of the die is cast, but instead of thinking of the die as dice, think of the other meaning in which a die is created to make a mold. Because what I'm saying is that at this point in history, some 50 years before the first Christmas, the die was indeed cast for the model of Western Europe, and more importantly, for our story, for the nation that would become Galois France. This Roman takeover of the lands of the Gallic people, for they really didn't identify with a country at all at this point, had already long been active. Almost a century before Caesar crossed the Rubicon, land that would become modern France had already been colonized by the Romans. This consisted of two provinces, divided by the mountain range, the Alps. The first was called Cisalpine Gaul. 
Cisalpine means before the mountains, and more specifically, when we are talking about Rome, it means before the Alps. In terms of today, think of northern Italy, Milan, Turin, places like that. Now, a bit later on, but still before Caesar's time, transalpine Gaul, which you guessed it means Gaul on the other side of the Alps, was added to Rome's growing list of franchises, I mean, provinces. First, late Romans called it Gallia Narbonensis, Narbonensis, and then it'd be Narbonne for short. And eventually, they simply called it the province. It was there the modern-day Provence gets its name. The area resides almost all in modern-day France, but back then it was Gaul. In short order, the people residing here found it very advantageous to buy into what the Romans were selling. Without any notable resistance to speak of, the province quickly began to outpace the original, and in many ways the area's largest city, Marseille, is said to have become more Roman than Rome herself. Just ask Pliny the Elder, writing in the first century AD when he wrote, quote, In its flourishing civilization, its abundance of wealth, the nature of its customs and inhabitants, the Nabernese is second to no other province. It is, in fact, not a province at all. It is Italy, unquote. So at this point, you have the Alpines chunk, and the rest of that area that is conquered by Caesar and is now subject to Roman rule and will be for the next 400 years or so, will just be called Gaul, or sometimes long-haired Gaul. Now, when I first started digging into the subject, at surface, it seemed that Gaul was equal to what we now call France. Now, that's actually not super accurate. Only about 65% of what was then Gaul um, is actually France. The other parts um, of Gaul extended far across Western Europe. Now, politically, it mostly left the ruling classes that escaped death in place, and that meant that even though there was not something previously called Gaul, it was still made up of the patchwork tribal system as before. Just it's been severely neutered and everyone was under the yoke of one rule, one ruler, and for the first time in their history. Now, if you look up a map of Caesar's Gaul, you'll see what I mean. You begin to see the structure of Western Europe and you can see the hundreds of tribes that made up the vast amount of the population left alive. In a previous episode, I attempted to track down how many times Caesar himself named a specific tribe. I stopped counting in the 120s. Now, this large number of political entities effectively neutered the ability for Gallic culture to rule themselves. Only in extreme circumstances were they able to even try and harness enough political power to galvanize themselves into one unit politically, and they failed at that because obviously Caesar won. Now, religion could also be used as a great binder in society, right? Now, as it turns out for the Gauls, there was no real state religion. Um, there were, of course, the Druids, and there's a wide range of opinions concerning Druidic religion. Now, for me, my thoughts are that the Druids were responsible for the metaphysical upkeep of Gallic culture, but they didn't run things. Their council was much sought after, and there were times when a rogue Druid would don armor and lead a force into battle, but those times are rare. I like to think of the Druids of the Gauls as slightly more involved oracles of the ancient Greeks. The venerance of the oracles by the likes of the Spartans seems like a good comparison. It was important to consult the oracles and get their cryptic offering, which was supposed to have some sort of force of law, of course, until it didn't. Another similarity between Druids and oracles is their close association with the elite or ruling class. Neither were part of the common person's everyday life. Kings, politicians, and the wealthy pretty much had exclusive access to the wisdom of these metaphysical advisors. 
most of the common rabble may do with their worship of their minor household gods. And a great example of how more things change the more they stay the same, even back then, if you didn't have the clout, you were left out. But the rank and file may do without direct contact from the Druids. They poured out their grog for their dead relatives, who they called their manes or manes. They sacrificed and laid offerings to the lares, also known as founders of their house. Most of Gaul relied on these types of observances and other minor ones to get them through their day. Now, the Hoi Polloi had a different set of circumstances. Up until being conquered, the ruling class of Gaul was guided by those Druids. That relationship will be one of the big changes that will occur when Roman rule comes to Gaul. Now, change is the operative word, as for whatever reason, the Romans decided not to go after and kill all the Druids. Instead, they instituted their state religion throughout the land and sort of just pushed them aside. Roman temples moved into towns and the Druids moved out. There was no widespread persecution of Druids like what was happening roughly about the same time to the Jews in Jerusalem and what will happen to the Christians in a century or so. Now, the only limitation the Romans placed upon the Druids was that they had to stop the practice of human sacrifice. Now, this seems a small allowance, and most of the Druidic culture adhered to the mandate. We know this because the Druids outlasted the Roman priests in Gaul and were only eventually eradicated by Christianity centuries later. So they obviously adhered enough to stick around long enough, right? At this time in Roman history, they, the Romans, are almost at their peak powers. If the Gallic people had continued to disobey the edict barring human sacrifice, then the Romans would have corrected that situation. And not for moral reasons whatsoever, but for more mundane reasons like investment and business interests. Killing perfectly serviceable slaves was bad for business. Though they could boast longevity, by the time Caesar was crossing the Rubicon, the Druids were a shell of their former selves. They were not the driving force behind the burgeoning western frontier of civilization. So if it wasn't politics that defined Gaul, and it wasn't at this point religion either, what were the dynamic forces that were most responsible for the classic western European culture we are so familiar with? A culture defined by hamlets and towns, connected by dirt roads dotted with carts and travelers. A culture defined by the vast differences that can be found even to this day from town to town, neighborhood to neighborhood, street to street. Now, I'd like to nominate an idea, a dynamic force that, while not very sexy, I believe is incredibly important to the creation of the world that brought us Evariste Galois. I feel it was, and pretty much still is a culture, that being Gaul, that was and still is defined by geography. Modern-day France, Switzerland, Holland, Belgium, large parts of modern-day Germany, and even a bit of Spain were all once considered Gaul. The Rhine River constitutes the border between Gaul and Germania in the north. The Pyrenees Mountains provide the border between Gaul and Spain in the south. All of that in between was Gaul. Geography dictates the structure of society. Take the area called Aquitania in southeast Gaul. It is where Bordeaux is today. Now, this area butts up against the Pyrenees to the south, the Atlantic Ocean to the west, and the curvy, reverse, lowercase r-shaped Loire River to the north and east. This area really didn't change much until the First World War, and in some areas it still hasn't changed that much in over 2,000 years. Now, each of the modern countries mentioned, France, Switzerland, Holland, Belgium, Germany, and Spain, are defined in large part by their geography to this day. The people who live there are connected to that. 
Now, that started long before Caesar, of course. I mean, tribes of Gallic people and Celts and proto-Gauls like the Ligurians had been in the neighborhood for tens of thousands of years. But after Julius Caesar and his brutal pruning, that early Gallic culture became stolid, slow to change, and stuck in that mold Caesar had forced them into. Before Caesar, the population of Gaul was nomadic, vast moving caravans numbering in the hundreds of thousands. After Caesar, the Gallic world slowed to a stop. No longer nomadic, the various tribes settled down into small villages and towns connected to the Roman world by Roman roads. This matters to our man Evariste because this is the world he was born into. The place he was born, Bourg-la-Reine, is a town some nine miles or so outside of Paris. Now, Paris was already a place in Caesar's time. The fact the city is named after a whole tribe, the Parisi, who lived on the banks of the Seine River. Now, it's not hard to imagine that Galois' town wasn't too far behind. Now, the historical record was the first... The historical record has the town first being mentioned in 1132 AD, which when a convent was built in the area. Now, either way, it's an old place. It was old when Galois was born, and I'm willing to bet it had not changed that much in all that time. Eventually, Paris would swallow up the small town, but the area in Galois' time, that Boularain, was a completely separate place than the bustling city of lights. And once Toes carried Caesar across the Rubicon and set in motion what was to transform a 300-year-old republic into an empire that would last for 500 more years, the world of Evariste Galois was beginning to take shape. But being forced into the sedentary urban-suburban life under Roman rule would have far-reaching consequences for history. This would be because the Romans would put a stop to the migrations of these mammoth herds of Gallic people. The pretty persuasive reason most often given by Caesar and his side of the argument for conquering Gaul was to put a Romanized buffer, meaning disciplined, focused, and aggressive between themselves and the Germans. That's where Gaul is, right? So Gaul would provide the weapons, the provisions, the men, and most importantly, the space for Rome to be able to defend its northern border, the largest and most contentious border they had. They needed to be able to produce what was required. To do that, then the era of meandering clusters of hundreds of thousands of stinking hairy Gauls had to be ground to a halt. Which sounds like a pretty good plan, but like all good plans, there are unintended consequences. And in the case of Gaul, and in the future of the Western world, one of these unintended consequences would crop up every time the people of Gaul, and later France, would get stressed by plague, war, or tyrants. This is because the most common cause of Gallic internal strife and warfare prior to the Romans was when two tribes ran into each other and they started fighting over resources. Now, that was something of an irregular occurrence. You know, tribes could settle in an area sometimes for generations and wouldn't move. So sometimes, even though they were nomadic in a sense, they were never consistently running into other tribes because when they did, it was bad news. Now, the very stagnation that is being created will bring forth the conditions that will one day be this fractious world of region against region, town against town, neighbor against neighbor. Because when the Roman staunch began, no thought was given to the fact that in many places across Gaul, longtime rival tribes had settled right next to each other. And over centuries, this proximity could and would pit former Gallic tribes like the Boii and the Parisi against each other. 
Now, their titles would change over time. The boy eye might come to identify as Catholics. The Paris eye might choose to be an Aryan. Later on, the Catholics might find it convenient to follow the king and be royalists. Meanwhile, the former Aryans could view themselves as ardent Republicans. Now, this type of thing would be going on all over Gaul. And thanks to geography, this world of unhappy bedfellows was kept in place. It is an interesting coincidence that the Gaul of Caesar's time could be so easily carved up along natural lines. Rivers, seas, mountains, and forests did the hard work of defining the boundaries of Gallic life. Another thing about the geography that I would be remiss if I didn't mention, for the land played a far bigger role in the lives of the people of Gaul than that of a mere docent. Because not only were the mountains, rivers, forests good at separating people, they were also fantastic at providing for those people. Gaul was and is an extremely abundant and diverse area of the planet. It would be hard to discount the impact of this bountiful land's ability to sustain the towns and villages of Gaul. If it weren't for this ability, Rome could not have transformed Gaul into a market-based culture. Galois would be contending within his lifetime with this small-town, disconnected, self-sufficient, but wholly self-centered civic life that was rife with undercurrents of distrust, paranoia, and hostility. Roman rule ended their migratory lifestyle and settled the Gallic people in pretty great places to carve out a life, well, in most cases. And there they stayed, even if they were living side by side with some ancient enemy from a tribal past. This geographic influence tension still exists to this day. Accompanying this geographic influence was the political realities whenever true Roman rule was instituted. Overall, the Gauls had never been ruled by an overarching power. This will all change, but it will take some time. A couple of decades, at least, would pass after Julius Caesar left Gaul for good and his adoptive son, Octavius, who now called himself Augustus, codified the everlasting structure of Gaul. It is during those 25 years or so between Julius Caesar and Augustus that it became apparent that the people of Gaul were truly defeated. There was plenty of time, money, and men to mount a rebellion against Rome. Now, while most of the might of Rome was focused on resolving another devastating civil war that took most of their legions off to faraway places like modern-day Turkey and Egypt, very far away from Gaul. But no resistance was put up by the Gallic people. None. Now, this trait of not rising up to defeat one's conqueror does not sit well with many of the French writers of history. For instance, Foustel de Coulange laments, quote, Gaul was part of the Roman Empire for 500 years, and throughout that long period of time, history cannot find that she made a single effort to separate herself from that empire, unquote. There are some solid reasons why Gaul was at least neutral about being Romanized. Adopting the culture and processes of the Romans was attractive to a large portion of the elite ruling class. This is the second major reason, historically speaking, as to why the world of Galois was so flippin' complicated is that Gaul not only didn't mind being Roman, they ended up being more Roman than people actually from the city of Rome. Now, once the Roman Empire begins to grow long in the tooth, all sorts of people get to be named Emperor of Rome. For hundreds of years, Roman emperors were not born in Rome. They were Greek, Egyptian, Northern African, North African, Gallic, Spanish, and Balkan. And alas, they were all men. During that time, Gaul started to resemble Rome itself. 
Now, once they settled into the towns and villages, and these towns and villages started being connected by well-built Roman roads, it became obvious to the peoples of Gaul that they found the old saying, when in Rome, is more accurately put, when in Gaul, do as the Romans do. This was all helped along by the happy coincidence of when a dire need is met with just the right solution, at least as far as the Romans are concerned. This was because Augustus was by all measure a fantastic organizer. His adoptive father, Julius, had left his most trusted lieutenants in charge of this vast new super province. Augustus basically kept the geographic divisions in place and kept Gaul separated into four new provinces of more manageable size. Thanks to Augustus's long rule, a truly august 41 years, and his remarkable management ability, Gaul was left with extremely competent, extremely loyal leadership for generations. Julius Caesar can be said to have conquered Gaul with cruelty, but Augustus managed to keep Gaul passive and productive and in line using nothing more than competence. To give some perspective to what Augustus and his immediate successors were able to achieve in their first 50 or so years of rule over Gaul, it's startling to find out that it was all accomplished with actually no Romans being involved. Well, almost no Romans. It is estimated that there was only about 5% of the people living throughout Gaul that were actually Roman at this time. Now, this includes legions, governors, and all the ruling class. And though those did make up most of that 5%, it was still just 5%. There were never any real rank-and-file Romans living in Gaul. Only one urban center, the city of Lyon, was built for and lived in by Romans. The rest of Gaul was populated by Gauls, who had been so thoroughly defeated by the Romans that they willingly became the best versions of Romans they could muster until eventually the pupil surpassed the teacher and Gaul became one of the last bastions of Roman culture in the West. In Gaul at this time, when you were looking at places of high population density instead of money and power emanating from the center of this world and working its way outwards, like in many modern cultures, these ancient Gallic versions worked from the outside in when it came to seats of power, or at least from somewhere inside the estate is more accurate. The villas were located, the master's villas they're called, were located on this vast property, but based on the dimensions of the land, were rarely located in a central location, which was the point, right? They wanted some space between themselves and everyone else. Regardless of where the estates were located, these villas were seats of power, and I think are analogous to some of the enormous ranches of places like in Texas. There is nothing but space, it seems, when it comes to both of those. Though there is much infrastructure spread out all over the vast property, like stables, barns, storage silos, large equipment, it certainly gave the appearance, and gives the appearance sometimes, like I said in Texas now, of vastness. And that was to persuade any nefarious sorts from wasting any time finding anything of value in what was certain to be a fruitless quest, given how much space there was to cover. Now, at this time, these rustic seats of power were very much transitioning from Gallic to something more Roman Gallic. And the enormous structures that the praetor or governor would house, his family and staff would be called that master villa. Now, these areas that certain Gallic tribes, as I mentioned a minute ago, lived in for decades or so, they had their own villas of their own. Now, if these places happened to be an area of strategic need to the Romans, they most certainly would have just occupied that existing place and improved it to meet Roman standards, and the towns and villages that were built up around it would begin to grow. 
Now, much like the advent of the railroad in America, being in a good position geographically in Gaul paid out life or death consequences. If it was determined that your area was not important to the effort, then it was removed or ignored to the point of desolation. The villas that remained welcomed to the laborers, slaves, and craftsmen that would trudge in from the countryside trying to survive and willing to swear allegiance to just about anything for a raw biscuit and some clean water. Thus, these villas grew into mega-villas. Now, these villas were most often vying for the largest buffer of space between themselves and any of the other mega-estates that were around, sort of using the same strategy that Caesar and the Romans said they needed between Gaul and Germany, right, that buffer. Now, it was for this reason that they were often located far away, these mega-villas, from any of their towns and villages, no, you know, these towns and villages on their these vast properties were built, you know, typically near rivers or crossroads, and they were meant to facilitate all the things that these mega villas needed, but the mega villas certainly weren't near them. So there was always this distance between who was in charge and who was actually doing the work. During this time, these grand villas, when you saw them, they were enormous, and they have sometimes housing hundreds of people, including the masters of the whole deal. Now, these you know, masters were usually a family, Roman in name, but Gallic in familial heritage. Now, these Roman Gallic estates were notable for a couple reasons, right? Uh, one of them we just mentioned, they were huge. The country of France grew from the estate outwards. Villages and towns popped up surrounding these gigantic operations that sometimes involved thousands of people, including a large percentage of slaves, in order to support the villa's inhabitants. Now, the second thing that is notable about these estates is just a small one of those tidbits I talked about earlier is how much the master's villas were, how they were designed. Now, it's a great example of how different our world is than the world we're talking about. So these main villas or master villas had a basement stable for animals sort of built right into the nicest, safest looking hill they could find. So they sort of dug out the top of the hill. Now, on top of that, they built this sort of sprawling ranch style home and they just kept adding on to it. I say ranch style, I just mean sort of one level and it just sort of amoeba its way on, the, on top of the mountainside. Now, one of the main design features of these master villas was the fact that on purpose, the master suite, which the main dude and his lady slept in, was built right on top of the stables. Now, this was done because it was believed that the smell of animal feces was exceedingly healthy. Right? It's those little things. I mean, imagine booking an Airbnb, looking for a rustic experience and realizing that you're sleeping over a pile of shit. Now, I wonder if they would put that in the guest book or on the website under amenities. I mean, for a healthier sleep, the main bedroom comes custom designed to deliver the healthy smell of nature to lull you into a restful slumber. Now, these gigantic estates held the seat of power for the region, controlling the urban areas of commerce and manufacturing that housed most of the lower classes. Here, I'm going to rely on our friend Franz Funk Brentano as he puts it this way, quote, imagine one of the departments of France today. Now, this is me, not Franz. Departments are part of the administrative divisions of the country of France. Um, to me, a department seems a lot like a state or a large county. Well, back to France. Imagine one of the departments of France today, inhabited by Gallic people, one of the old peoples of independent Gaul, with a capital, some towns of secondary importance, several pagi, territorial groups from which the pays of France were developed. This is me again. Pays sound to me like another word for tribal affiliation. When I looked it up, they say that 
uh, a pay, which is just P-A-Y-S, is, quote, inhabitants who share common geographic, economic and cultural and social interests. Hmm. Tribal affiliation, right? All right. Back to France. A certain number of villages, the Vichy and numberless country estates, each one ruled by its master, who lived in his villa and constituted a separate social cell. Such after the Roman conquest and for eight or nine hundred years afterwards were the essential elements of social life in Gaul until the time of the Carlovinginians, which, by the way, is Charlemagne. Unquote. So, just as a reminder, this is not the time that is commonly referred to as the Dark Ages. We're not there yet. Life at this point is not picture perfect for sure, but comparatively, the Roman world has brought some predictability to life and in doing so brought stability. Of course, it took killing 10 million Gauls to do it right. But hey, progress. So if I'm following what Franz Funk was just putting down, though, what was once a tribe became the Pagi, which eventually became the Pays. There does not appear to be much substantially different about the terms. It really seems to be like a matter of semantics and context. If you're talking, you know, in 300 AD, you're talking about the Pagi. Fast forward to the 14th century and you're talking about Pays. Rewind the tape back, maybe to Caesar's time, and you're talking about tribes. Another point to make, each of these mega estates could be defined by the tribe, Pagi or Pei, that were in control, long before there was even a building there, right? The game played for control of these vast lands will in time come to rival any fight for dominion that has ever been put to paper. We will begin on this first age of the great villas and its masters. At this point, the masters are Roman, but they will not always be. No matter who is calling the shots above the enormous pile of shit, this arrangement will play a most pivotal role in the history of France. Geography and genocide. Those are those dynamic forces we've been talking about that help explain the complex world of Everiste Galois. Now, these major forces played a role in Galois' time in the 19th century as well. Thanks to the tribe Pagi pay system in place where you lived and how you made your living went a long way in defining your overall quality of life. Just ask Galois' father, who Everiste believed was driven to take his own life by the local Catholic powers of his town. The chaotic mess that Galois tried to navigate, the world that caused his father to commit suicide, the world that saw his mathematical genius snubbed as he saw it, by his enemies, the Royalists and the Catholics, a world where someone who worked in something as logical as math would find himself resorting to violence that would land him in prison and inevitably cost him his life at the mere age of 20. As I mentioned, many theories concerning Galois' self-destructive spiral revolve around the death of his father. The timing of his dad's suicide coincides with bad stuff turning much, much worse for Galois. There's no underestimating how that affected him and how much he faulted Catholicism or just the local parish cabal. In either case, they pushed a young man to some of the most extreme extremes there is. And thus we enter into a discussion of the third big factor in the crazy-ass world of Everiste Galois. As we have seen, it is a story of geography and genocide, but it is also a story of soil and soul, a saga of what it means to be French and how that defines what it means to have faith. Now, the faith I'm talking about, of course, is Christianity, arguably the most dynamic force in all of Western history. The story of Christianity is pretty well known, maybe not in detail, but the broad strokes are understood by a lot of us. On top of that, even if you identify as a hardcore atheist, it is difficult to avoid the fact that in 
the West, that the world, at least so far, has been so heavily influenced by the religion that it's hard to separate the two, that is, Christianity and culture. But we're not going to be talking about Christianity per se. Well, at least not exclusively. What we are interested in is the story that is not as well known, the story of Christianity's beginnings in Gaul. Now, once I started to get focused on this topic, it became apparent to me that I was not aware of much. A big reason for that is there is not a ton of information about the topic of early Christianity in Gaul. Now, there are, of course, many factors to this, not, not the smallest of which is the fact that Gaul was at this time and throughout most of the centuries that would follow, mostly an oral culture with illiteracy rates in the 99th percentile. Now, so left with no direct evidence, it is almost like we have to apply a bit of historical Doppler effect on the topic. We can try and nurse out some clarity the same way an astronomer coaxes out the location of a black hole by looking for its effects on surrounding space. For instance, we can be pretty certain that Gaul was a pretty ideal place for Christianity to take root, concerning how most of Gaul was defined by separation and space. Even though Gallic population centers were isolated thanks to the Romans, they were connected by well-maintained roads. Isolated, self-contained villages and towns, balkanized by large landowning families who ran things from a distance. This is a very important piece of the puzzle. A fledgling religion could take advantage of this extra space and time. In contrast with Gaul, the East at this time was a place where we know a great deal about the early Christians. In many places east of Gaul, people have been reading and writing for thousands of years. Documentation, study, debate, education. Now, of course, they weren't talking about Christianity that whole time, but there was the structure of learning and knowledge well in place. They were all well established wherever Greek culture happened to flourish, which, thanks to Alexander the Great and his generals, Places like Athens and Alexandria was just about everywhere, everything west of the Gauls. It is this world of the East that takes front and center when one most often learns about the beginnings of Christianity, which of course makes sense. It is, after all, Jesus' backyard. But the very fact that he, Jesus, lived in the same Roman world as the recently conquered Gauls means that they were connected by all those well-maintained roads which carried information far and wide. They were part of the same information network. It is uncanny. It is an uncanny property of information. It wants to move, and when it does, things are affected by its movement alone, regardless of the content of the message. The scientific field of information theory is based on the study of the behavior of such data, regardless, in most cases, of the content. It is the type of thinking that one can point to that is directly influenced by our man Galois. His view of what could be learned by studying the construction of equations, regardless of the content of those equations, was just put into use in a different way, using information theory instead of algebra. Back in the first century Gaul, once Augustus obtained the title emperor for the first time in Roman history, his relatives in power in Gaul, most notably a guy named Drusus, came up with an idea to deify Uncle Augie. So starting at about 12 BC or so, temples, and in some cases just plain old rocks, had this inscription carved into it. Quote, The people of Narbonne have dedicated this altar to the divine Augustus and have vowed to him an annual feast forever. May this be the honor and glory of the emperor Caesar, son of the divine Julius, Augustus, father of our country, sovereign pontiff, and the honor and glory of his wife and children, and of the senate, the Roman people, and the town of Narbonne, which dedicates itself and devotes itself forever to the worship of his divinity, unquote. 
ever a pragmatic bunch, the Romans thought it a good idea to pass along the good word that they were not only being represented by the best of Romans, but he was also now a god. Funny thing about this, and I'm pretty certain that most Romans, like Caesar, Julius Caesar, would consider himself a Roman first, then a god. I'm not sure if Augustus was happy about his deification. But in any event, he did, Augustus, decide. Why not start a religion or at least expand an existing one by introducing living deities? If anything, the decision was an easy one. I mean, he didn't have to look too far. At any rate, this may seem weird to our modern ears. A living god? How did that idea go down? Pretty well, as it is important to remember how gods, in plural is important, were viewed back then. Whether you were Roman or Druidic, you believed in a gang of poor-behaving, petulant gods and goddesses that were not looked upon in the slightest to provide any sort of ethical or moral path to follow. They were in many ways the worst of us, manifest in the minds of weak people searching for a rationalization of their own shitty actions. There were no teaching, lessons, or guidance save for what not to do. Nothing about the right ways to act. In effect, there were no commonly understood ethics. There was no defined morality as we know it in the Roman world. Their method for defining their reality was based on something they defined as honor, a code they called the cursus honorum, which defined the lives of the ruling class of Rome. Now, this patrician class, these Romans, considered themselves most excellent and above all other known cultures. Now, this aloofness did not extend to when they were dealing with each other. That is when there was some fierce competition and so the gloves were off amongst those who considered themselves the Roman elite. Even more than that, it was actually more important to live on in the memory of fellow Romans after you died. So not a soul, but your memory, what they called their dignitas, kind of like the wake left over after a large boat passes. The greater, more honorable a life, the larger the wave created, the more future Romans will feel the power of lies lived by the Roman pinnacle of Romanness which was all great and good, but none of it at all included anything that we would call morals or ethics. And this is not surprising, as this is a very peculiar time in human history, the time of Julius and Augustus Caesar. It was a time when there was no overarching rules of behavior set by a metaphysical belief system. The Roman systems of the cursus honorum and dignitas were as ever pragmatic in nature and dealt with the material world. After you die, a Roman of this time believed that was it. No more chances to add to your dignity or your honor. They, the patricians, really didn't follow any gods or supernatural beliefs unless you count stuff like luck or fortune. It's, it's hard to read the likes of Cicero and Caesar and Pliny and many, many others and not come away feeling that these men felt that they were standing alone on top with nothing or no one above them running the show. To paraphrase the great James Brown, it's a romance world. Now, this is not to say that organized religion is not important to these Romans. On the contrary, they pay close attention to the practice of the state religion. But the reason for this has nothing to do with piety. Instead, the Senate and fellow elite Romans use organized religion for control. Control of laws, control of the elections, control of the calendar. All of these, in the right mind, could be manipulated using Roman state religion. Rome's religion was really a lot like our version of a filibuster, a tool of obstruction. If you needed a law or an election or a war, someone with an axe to grind could fuck it all up with an inauspicious augury 
or a moving of a holy day to accommodate a resetting of the calendar. It is something that Julius Caesar used to great effect before leaving for Gaul, for not only was he a senator and a consul, but he was also Rome's highest priest, the Pontifus Maximus. The Romans had a very different view of church and state. In any event, using religion as a weapon was nothing new to Julius Caesar. He paid attention to what would motivate men, and it played no small part in him being considered one of the most successful military commanders of all time. Again, I could easily say ruthless, genocidal, and monstrous military commanders of all time. Well, I did. There you go. Someone as astute as Caesar would not overlook what made his enemies tick, metaphysically speaking. Writing one of his updates that he would send off to be copied and sent back to Rome, Caesar, here he's writing about the Druids, and he had this interesting thing to say about them. Of the Druids, he said, quote, They are anxious to have it believed that souls do not die, but after death pass from one to another. It's a small piece of information, but it seems that it's something that Augustus might have paid attention to. After all, he was a detail person. Now, Augustus seems to have believed that the secret to managing Gaul with a mere 1,200 or so troops was to make it easy for them to believe in something. It is definitely arguable if they made the right choice in choosing the emperor for that, but in a way, their success kind of does speak for itself. What Augustus was providing was religion hooked up to a state-of-the-art communication network. This was not something that was actually new to the Gauls. After all, there were plenty of holy places that Druidic faithful felt connected to and were recognized as such. What made the Roman version different is that same old trick that Romans kept using so effectively, logistics and organization. An efficient, dependable way to keep lines of communication open and up to date. Now that was something altogether new to the Gauls. Now in places such as the older, more developed world of the East, not so much. You know, that place is steeped in centuries of Greek thought and ancient even to people like the Romans, right? So this type of information communication network had existed in some form or another for millennia. Now, the Roman influence in the East is much less than the Roman influence in the West for that very reason, right? Due to the aforementioned ancient past, solid traditions and access and conflict with worlds as vast and powerful as Persia, India and China, the Eastern world of Christianity would develop in many cases under a wholly different set of circumstances than what happens in Gaul, even though they're both part of the same network. Now, when it came to Gaul, it can be argued that Augustus was looking for that social binder that could fill in the gap left when the Druids fled into the forest and fringes of Gallic society. It was something he hoped that would afford future Roman leaders a modicum of control over the vastness of Gaul and its people. Because this was a Roman religion, it was practiced mainly by Roman-leaning wealthy classes of Gaul. Just like in the days of Druidic influence, the de facto state religion was a sandbox limited to only a select few to play in. Now, in this manner, this former culture, the Gallic one, begins to take on the stratified character of, of the entire Roman system. That system supports a very simple premise. The rich get richer. Over Gaul, it is the very predictable reinforcement of the haves and the have-nots. In this case, shortly after being all but stripped of their Druidic influencers, the haves, the ruling class of Rome, was given a new state religion based on a living god in the form of the Roman emperor. And as for the have-nots, well, 
Typically, it would be the case that the not in have not would continue. But, au contraire, mon frère, there is about to be a new movement that will be championed not by the powerful or by the wealthy, but by the very people that history has all but ignored. A movement led by the common people who played a less than influential role in most of history is about to take center stage in our story of the history of France. Now, at this point, we're still 50 years or so from Christmas year zero. Is that right? Is there a year zero or does it start at one? Anyway, dates vary as to when the religion first made inroads into Gaul. Now, according to some accounts, Christian missionaries were spotted in Marseille in 63 AD, a mere 30 years or so after Jesus died. Now, I thought to myself, can that, is that, could that date be right? So a quick search of the internet, and it seems that this date, 63 AD, is not popular as an opinion as it concerns when Christianity was first spotted in Gaul. Now, the most popular answer that Google has is 177 AD with the famous Martyrs of Lyon. And if you're not familiar, this is when dozens of Christians are reported to have been the victims of a series of excruciating tortures, all due to the fact that they were being blamed for a plague that was you know, afflicting Lyon and the surrounding area. Now, there are very few accounts of what actually happened in Lyon. And you know, really, the two major ones, the first one is considered the most definitive, but the first one is by a guy named Eusebius, and it's not even a firsthand account. I mean, he lives in Syria, and he lived 170 years after the events happening. The other man accounting of the story is around 600 AD, so there's not much really to go on. But I wouldn't be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to old Eusebius anyway. I mean, game's got to respect game. And his account is responsible for the phrase Thaistian banquets and Oedipian, Oedipian, either Oedipian or Oedipian, I like Oedipian, an Oedipian intercourse when he was describing the charges that were being brought against the Christians in Lyon. If you're playing at home, what Thaistian banquets and Oedipian intercourse means is cannibalism and incest, respectively. Now, in the end, though, for me, in this discussion, it really doesn't matter if the stories are accurate, if they actually happened. Um, the stories do help back up, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, the possibility that they were Christian missionaries traversed the roads of Gaul before 177 AD. I mean, they had to be prominent enough by this date to take the blame for something as horrible as the plague. And they were notable enough to be the bad guys, right? This level of prominence didn't just fall from the sky in 177 AD. It had to be built step by step, person by person from the ground up. It would take time which the Gauls luckily had thanks to their unique geopolitical setup. Now, by 177 AD, it would have been common knowledge as well that the Christians didn't participate in state religion. It's one of the reasons given for why they were persecuted, because they were pissing off the gods. They weren't doing it right. Now, which I need to remind everyone is not a real big deal most of the time throughout Rome. They let people do their own thing. That is most of the time, unless something really bad like a plague happens, right? Now, another factor that might have contributed to the persecutions might be something like a political rivalry or power struggle that boiled over. You know, maybe the Romans of Leon found a simple way of dealing with this new popular belief system that was carving out areas of power that made them uncomfortable. Claiming that such a rival is the cause of the plague might have seemed like a good opportunity to settle some scores and send a message. So the 177 is the date that is cited as the start of Christianity most often. I'm going to stick with my 60-ish AD date. 63, 65. And I think it best represents an accurate picture of what was actually going on, right? This practice began in or around 12 BC. And that is when each town and village in Gaul 
that warranted a temple was also transformed. Now, this transformation was not something that was driven by Rome. In fact, Romans took a measure of pride in the diversity of their empire. And while never actually supporting another culture, they definitely enjoyed having interesting, prestigious, and just plain odd places to call Roman. Unfortunately for the fans of Roman diversity, the the Gauls that remained after Caesar took a vested interest in losing themselves from the ideas of the past and wholeheartedly embraced what it meant to be Roman. Now, this effort was striking, even to the Romans. Hadrian, who who was emperor of Rome, from 117 to 138 AD, wrote, quote, When the Gauls might behave in their cities in accordance with their own laws and customs, it is astonishing to see them transforming them into Roman colonies, unquote. This meant that in addition to a temple of Augustus, there was almost always constructed a proper Roman forum, the heartbeat of any proper Roman enclave. All roads lead to the forum. Now, the town was then built around the forum, with the important buildings like temples establishing a Roman look and feel. Now, located nearby were buildings like a jail, possibly a large food store like silos, and a basilica. Now, you know what is not there is the villa. As we mentioned earlier, these towns and villages started to become Roman. The villas also became Roman, but they were always located far away from these areas of population. Now, in the big scope of attempting to understand something as complex as the history of France, for me, a lot can be learned by focusing on some of those small things, as I've said. Now, in this instance, you have your basic Roman basilica, a place for everyone, it seemed, and dedicated to no one. In this seemingly insignificant detail lies possibly a glimpse of a few lines of the real story of Christianity in Gaul. Now, these buildings were built by Romans, and oftentimes on or near important Gallic landmarks in order to conduct business with, well, anyone. The basilica's simplicity was a feature, not a bug. Because of of this simplicity, it eventually became attractive to early Christians due to the very fact that it was not overtly Roman or in any way dedicated to anything metaphysical. These buildings were so good at providing sanctuary to the fledgling Christians that they were able to achieve official bad guy status in a couple generations when the plague hits the city of Lyon. And it will eventually lead to a bunch of Romans persecuting a bunch of Christians for using the tools provided to them by those same Romans for using those tools too successfully. Now, the word basilica is Greek in origin and means basically king. And I'm not clear on why that particular word was chosen by the Romans, One thing good to know about Romans is that they, especially at this time, ironically, since they were ruled by an emperor, absolutely detest kings and everything they stand for. There's a longstanding cultural belief among Romans that for centuries they held near and dear the belief that their ancestors overthrew the last kings of Rome, which happened like 400-500 BC, establishing the Roman Republic. Now, that hatred of kings, and some say their fear of them, is palpable throughout almost any era of the Roman history. Any politician ever giving a whiff of royal desires is publicly vilified and even assassinated. That's one of the reasons why Julius Caesar was, right? Now, you can pick up any 10-year period in the history of the Roman Republic, and you will find one crisis or another revolving around a Roman who thought he would be king. The weird part of that is that even with all the diligence and paranoia, the Romans would spend over half of their history living under the tyranny of either a king or an emperor. 
Now, one of the only explanations that made sense to me is if, if it was a name, Basilica, that is, King, that was picked especially to appeal to the uber-spiritual Gauls. But fucking A, if I ain't all kinds of wrong about that. That is because the first recorded construction of a basilica predates the conquering of Gaul by Caesar by about 130 years, and it was built in Rome. And I would say that shoots my theory down. So at least for me, it is still a mystery as to why the Romans would ever use the word king to name anything, save maybe an outhouse. Now, whatever the reason, the name does lend the place some social import, though you could never tell by looking at it. All sorts of business was conducted in it. Political, merchant, judicial, and festive events were all part of a good basilica's calendar of events. Due to its need for flexibility, it was most often the most basic, least ostentatious of all Roman buildings. Ever pragmatic, the Romans built these buildings in this manner since they very often allowed for subjects to police their own belief systems. It is almost like a primitive acknowledgement of some form of market-based separation of church and state. By design, Romans constructed enormous drab buildings near the center of town to conduct all manner of business with many different types of people. To them, the Romans, it was important to keep the beliefs outside the doors of the basilica, as after 500 years of trial and error, they determined that sometimes you need to keep the two, that is church and state, separate in order to conduct peaceful, profitable business. It is this very desire to keep the basilica a place free of ideology that the Romans ended up creating the perfect place for groups of people wishing not to be surrounded by anyone else's beliefs to congregate. In fact, this is the very reason that most early Christians chose to meet in the town's basilicas because the building lacked any other religious iconography. I got it right. Religious iconography. So there is a connection to the worship of the living Roman emperor and the spread of Christianity in Gaul. Where a temple to Augustus was placed, so was a Roman colony. The basic starter kit came with solid, dependable roads, a forum, and a basilica. These drab, unattractive buildings, which already at this time had some of the features we see even in today's churches, like small naves, asps, and a raised area in the front that at the time was for the local magistrate, but was now referred to as the sanctuary. It is very common in Gaul, or France, for future churches, that it, some that even exist today, to be built on the same ground as the original basilica some even incorporating the original structure. Now, this was something that may have been pretty much exclusive to Gaul. In Italy and the eastern part of the empire, the temple and sanctuary game was already very strong. I mean, Rome dated back some 700 years, Egypt some 2,800 years. In many cases, these pagan temples in the east were destroyed and rebuilt as sanctuaries. Now, this was much different than what was happening in Gaul, where the chosen place of worship, the basilica, was not exclusively a religious building. It served many purposes. On the other hand, a reclaimed or rebuilt former pagan temple in the east was not rebuilt into a community center, but was built back as a church. But on the western fringe of civilization, the Gauls were beginning to develop all sorts of versions of early Christianity that no one else was paying attention to. Even though we do not have any real evidence of what those early Gallic Christians were doing, we do know how they lived, and we even have some snippets of what they lived for. What is clear from what we do know is that it is far more complex a picture of newbie Christianity in Gaul than at least I ever thought. Whatever and however these people practice their faith, you can be certain it bears very little resemblance to anything that we would call today 
Christianity. As the second century AD dawned, new ideas were hitting the cobblestones of all those sturdy Roman roads and traveling from town to town, village to village, and basilica to basilica. At each stop along the way, they would be a safe place to meet with like-minded people, a connection that was being formed across Gaul. This connection was not something involving the elite or the powerful, but instead the lower class who took advantage of the time and the distance available to them to spread their good word. Now, I want to emphasize that good word. In this instance, I'm not referencing the good word as in gospel. Instead, I want to take the word at face value and call good with a capital G to mean, yes, I am a good person and you can trust me. You know this because we identify with a group and a belief that was perhaps made popular simply by setting a good with a capital G example of how not to be a complete flaming d-hole to one another all the time. Now, there's a great quote from the first American edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, published in 1902. Don't ask. I like old encyclopedias. Concerning this confluence of motion, protection, and belief that helped without any real help from anyone in a position of power spread in early proto-Christianity quietly throughout the Gallic-Roman world. Quote, Though made of widely scattered congregations, intercommunication between the various Christian communities was very active. Christians, upon a journey, were always sure of a warm welcome and hospitable entertainment from the fellow disciples. Messengers and evangelists went continually from place to place. Thus, in various ways, the feeling of unity found expression and the development of widely separated parts of Christendom." Unquote. I'm not sure that they are still around, but when I was growing up and driving around, you would see stickers on the back of cars and campers for something called the Good Sam Club. It was something you could pay for, like a, a club that you could pay for, that would give you access to all other members, you know, called Good Sams, in your hour of need, typically vehicularly speaking. No coincidence that the Good Sam Club was, and maybe still is, at least Christian adjacent, you know, with its nod to Samaritans, right? Britannica's description of early Christianity's qualities do seem very good Sam-like or like auto club-like. And I'm not trying to offend. It is not insulting to say that it is of the utmost priority to provide the ability to keep you and your loved ones safe while traveling and just living in such a dangerous place as second century Gaul. It makes even more sense when you consider that the majority of the early Christians were not wealthy, not literate, and lived lives of quiet desperation to say the least. Just the small modicum of peace that even the most mundane version of Christianity might have provided would have changed people's lives. Maybe it's just ego or hubris to believe that a religion has to have miracles and promises of everlasting life to make a difference in people's lives. Simply providing a harbor in the storm should be, and I believe probably is enough, at least in the beginning it was. In the beginning, the people in charge were busy just going about being in charge. In the beginning, when it was just a grassroots network of early adopters of Christianity, those in charge barely noticed. It was their nature not to notice what was going on below, because the ones practicing this new system, this new belief system, were all but invisible to these rulers and had been for a very long time. But that system was already changing how the world was working. And history was to make clear by the time the persecution of Christians started, the Western world would now be recognizing soon a new boss. During this time of rising power struggles, the area known as Gaul 
will stay out of much of this early fight. They will be left to their own devices until after a lot of the questions are answered. In the meantime, a particularly Gallic version of Christianity, left to its own devices, was allowed to grow separate but connected to the working classes of Gaul. Now, in dealing with this early version of Gaul, Rome was certainly lulled into a false sense of security, which seems reasonable since there was nary a protest and plenty of money being made thanks to trade. As is the case in many times in history, that is described as wonderful and peaceful and pleasant. But it remains to be seen if the rank and file agree. This was the time known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which began roughly when Augustus took the throne and ends approximately 200 years or so later, the death of Marcus Aurelius. Now, before I wax poetic about this so-called peace, it is worth recalling our pagan proto-Scottish friend, Calgacus, who was talking about the Roman peace smack dab in the middle of this Pax Romana, about 70 AD. Remember he said, quote, to ravage, to slaughter, to usurp under false titles they call empire, and where they make a desert, they call it peace, unquote. Though he was speaking from the top of Britain, Alcalgacus was speaking for all of Gaul, a vast area covered in immaculate Roman roads dotted with small towns and villages, supporting vast estates ruled over by typically a single family dominating everything and breathing in shit fumes. Now, most people in Gaul lived in this type of bubble. Rome was nominally in charge, and as long as the bills were paid and sons were volunteered to fight in the wars, no one paid too much attention to how things were run. Except, of course, remember, no human sacrifice. The empire's got to have its standards. Most of what the ruling class of Rome used their version of religion for was for purposes of manipulation, right? Of the law, the people, the ideas of things as important to them as what it means to be Roman or as petty as throwing a bigger party than their political rival. Much like today, those running things in Gaul, like in most of the Roman Empire, were completely detached from the everyday workings of the world that had been put in place in order to serve them. At the beginning of the 2nd century AD, your average person of privilege was more interested in flowery poetry than in the teachings of a Semitic man from a half a world away. So in Gaul, the two systems, the one of the wealthy where the rules were set and enforced concerning businesses, elections, taxes, and war, and the information highway of the average person doing the work to keep the system afloat, were running separate but concurrently. These systems were not set up explicitly to define a new worldview, but they soon would be both supporting one. Now, I've called this conflict many names. The Old World versus the New World, B.C. versus A.D., ancient versus modern, Roman versus Western, pagan versus Christian. This is the pivot point that turns humanity into our modern world. And in the beginning of this conflict, as with all beginnings, the facts are murky, the stories unsubstantiated. But one thing is for sure, change is a coming. And when change comes, so does opportunity. Opportunity for people on the ropes. The rank-and-file Gauls, who supplied meat for the grinder of Roman life, to climb out of the unfathomable deaths after surviving on an almost complete annihilation. An opportunity for a people to latch on to something that is at once exceedingly simple and very complex. What the everyday Gallic person started to be exposed to thanks to this information highway was one of the most powerful feelings any person can experience. And that feeling is hope. Now, if you listen to my other episodes, it becomes 
clear pretty quickly that I hold no fondness for organized religion, which some special vitriol save for the largest Western religion, Christianity. So using a word like hope may seem a little bit out of character for me. Now, I was raised as a Catholic in a small New England town. I was such a Catholic that when I was in third grade and I learned that JFK was the first and only Catholic president, I raised my hand and asked if this was true, what were the rest of the presidents? I knew they weren't Jewish, so they must be Catholic, was my 10-year-old thinking. And it always stands as a good reminder of just how good religion was, at least for me, in defining how I saw the world. Now, in any event, the first Christians, these working class people toiling away, living cold, dark lives, anonymous to history, until they began tapping into this newfound sense of hope about the time Augustine rule started to set in. Now, his long rule and his immediate successors, who were more or less competent, meant that at this point, Gaul was still galling away, trying every day to be the best version of Rome it could be. This is all in the first 50 years A.D., All the momentum that was built up by Augustus during this time and the emperors that followed him, however, was about to be ground to a halt as one of history's more infamous bad guys was about to don the purple and gold bordered toga. His name, full name, is Imperator Nero Claudius Divi Claudius Filius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. We know him as Nero, the liar-playing pyromaniac. Now, about 10 years into Nero's tremendously awful reign, around 63 AD, there is evidence of Christian missionaries in Gaul. We Narbonne or Marseille, right? It is around this time that Nero is also credited with some of the first reported persecutions of Christians. Now, this actually happens five years later in 68 AD, and that story of Nero persecuting Christians in Rome is all wrapped up in the burning of Rome and him blaming the Christians for that, right? That, that sort of scapegoat pattern that is old as time. Now, there was persecutions of Christians in Gaul, probably, there is no doubt, but it was obvious not enough to stem the tide of the faithful spreading this sort of good news and this hope. But what exactly were they spreading? What was the content of this message? The fact that Christianity could spread so quickly, using in the beginning the working class, you know, slaves, prostitutes, lepers, criminals, meant that the message must have been basic enough to withstand repeated retellings. This was mentioned earlier that was mainly due to the Gallic, or more accurately, the Druidic tradition of not writing anything down. Now, prior to Christianity, religion in Gaul was taught and practiced as an exclusively oral tradition. This was done on purpose, as the Druid priests thought that much would be lost of the power of their beliefs if they were to be committed to paper. It is at this point, at this time in history, thanks to the desire to keep things on the oral tip, It is hard to know anything conclusively about what these early Christians were talking about, let alone what they were even worshiping anything at this point. Now, it is easy, I think, to see these early sessions being held in the Basilica as more of town hall meeting styles than anything resembling a mass or religious service. But you know what? We don't know. We know more about 7,000-year-old mathematics than we know about 2,000-year-old Christianity. Now, things were much different in the East, right? Eventually, the Christian religion will begin to overtake or try to the Eastern power infrastructure and they get persecuted for it and eventually win the day and they get a chance to sit down, put a pen to paper and hash out the official story of their religion. Now, the overall process has never really ended, of course, and even this initial step in the direction of creating a ubiquitous message for all Christians will take centuries. And during this whole time, the 
East will be the epicenter of Christian thought and power, Gaul will all but be forgotten, left to its own devices and cultural tendencies. Now, I'd like to connect something I brought up earlier. This was a time of relative independence of thought. It was a time with no clearly defined leadership. In a way, the inmates were kind of running the asylum. Now, I've wondered what they were actually talking about in these early days, but one thing I am confident of is that in many areas of Gaul at this time, these discussions were going on involving those ancient tribal relationships and conflicts. Their respective pays or paji or tribes in power in a particular area or city got to make up the rules, but they just didn't write them down. The powder keg that was Gaul after Julius Caesar leaves them, the previous social political world of the Gauls, smashed to bits and rearranged with little thought to the possible consequences of pitting ancient rivalries against one another. There is little doubt in my mind that these deeply rooted cultural feelings for tribe and family went a long way into how much or how little a certain area of Gaul would accept and eventually practice this very early version of Christianity. I'm confident about this because as the history of France unfolds, we will encounter Gaul against Gaul in all-out war based on what version of Christianity your master happens to ascribe to. Now, these offshoots and variants of true Christian doctrine would take centuries to be eradicated or absorbed by the Catholic Church. These actions would go a long way to forging once and for all the structure of France of Évariste Galois' day. In fact, the battle would still be being fought. Instead of Arians versus Catholics in the 700s, it is Republicans versus Royalists in the 1820s. This combination of ancient tribal belief systems in search of something new to believe in proved to be the fuse that would ignite a, a battle for power that would eventually lead to a bullet in the gut and early death for Galois. Back in the late 1st, early 2nd century, however, it was all quiet on the Western Front. At this time, the people of Gaul will go diligently about their business. We don't know if they were able or willing to follow closely the events occurring in the East. Throughout the early 300s, and as late as the late 800s AD, when by decree of the Christian leader, later emperor, later to be called the Holy Roman Emperor, a council would be convened to iron out the details of what being a Christian really meant. They were seven councils in all, and they were referred to as ecumenical councils. Ecumenical meaning commonly defined here as one of cooperation and teamwork. The origin of the word, though, is Greek, and is believed to be a combination of two much more ancient words, meaning the inhabited world, and house. Now, in any case, these councils started with the famous Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. The formalization of Christianity began in earnest here, in what is now the modern-day city of Iznik, located in the country of Turkey, which is very much located in what is thought of as the East. But back in our story in Gaul, we're going with the fact that the Christian missionaries were reported there in 63 AD, almost three centuries earlier. Now, I used the word hope earlier, and that was a genuine thought for me, meaning I went back and considered it for a bit. That is certainly not the case with most of my thoughts. Now, anyway, I thought hope was probably the best way to describe it, but I didn't want to misconstrue my reasons for believing that. The hope that I'm talking about is what the Encyclopedia Britannica broke down so well in their attempt to define a similar question. They said that early belief brought with it the feeling of unity found expression. That is what I'm talking about when I say hope. I do not hold that there was any extra special truth inculcated in the message of the early Christians, and I do not believe that there was any sort of divine intervention. 
And if you could travel those dark paths, and let's face it, I've romanticized the Roman road way too much in this episode. Most of them were little more than cart paths, but they were still much better than the previous version. But if you were walking one of those dark paths, wouldn't you feel hope when you came to a strange village and easily feel welcome and be given a safe place to rest and nourish yourself? Of course you would. We all would. And I would venture to say that in the early days of Christianity, that is exactly what was happening. Even more in Gaul than in the East, where places like Alexandria and Constantinople would take a more and more prominent role in the world of organized Christians in the centuries to come. But back in the Foundling West, back in Gaul, the people of Gaul left maybe to fend for themselves, to scratch out a living, to live in the dark against the harsh world, the roving bands of outlaws, the pestilence, and most of all, the ignorance of everyday life. I would like to think that would be overwhelming to most of us, right? Now, wouldn't it be nice to rely on the kindness of strangers to be treated in a neighborly fashion? To be able to cross a couple of those anxieties off the daily list would be a real game changer, and that I have no doubt. That is why I'm saying that early pre-council Christianity in the dark void that is Roman Gallic and eventually Gallic Frankish world was enough of a difference maker to consider converting to this new thing called Christianity. In a way, it was a sort of a system of manners, and it really did seem to work. By the time official Catholicism became the law of the land, it would find in Gaul competition for the hearts and minds of the people, because a belief, while sharing many similarities with the official doctrine, but was also different enough, a belief Gallic enough to pose a threat to the fast-rising Catholic industrial complex. Was this early version of Christianity simply a club of like-minded individuals who established a set of fair play rules to follow? Was that what was being passed along? What was the good news of these earliest days of faith? What were they talking about when they gathered together? What was being discussed in the basilicas in Gaul? It had to be more than really a really successful social club, right? Now, this is where I get two questions that pop into my head. Maybe you do too. The first is, what about the idea of the soul and its promise of everlasting life? The second is, what about persecution? You know, the martyrdom of the early Christians galvanizing the remaining believers and turning them into staunch defenders of the faith. Now, I answer that second one first. In Gaul, the major events that led to the famous Christian martyrs, known as the Martyrs of Lyon, didn't occur until 177, which is almost 120 years after Christians were spotted there. Now, I'm not saying it was all smooth sailing for these few generations of early Christians. It is more akin to the worst episodes of Game of Thrones turned to 11. I'm certain of that. But it is clear that in the beginning, most Christians were left alone, much like all other belief systems that existed inside the Roman Empire. For roughly 120 years, at least as far as our current knowledge goes, between the appearance of missionaries and the infamous slaughter of the innocents in 177, Christianity was left to grow organically through the Druidic-based culture, which had really no Druids left willing to practice their old faith. So this vacuum was created when Rome stripped the Druids of their power, and it was slowly being filled by a burgeoning culture that these days we would call Christian. Romans wanted it to be filled with worshiping Rome. But this new religion must really have been some sort of hodgepodge of pagan, apocryphal, and orthodox proto-Christianity and would be altogether unrecognizable to the average attendee of the typical Christian American megachurch. I think that this amount of time, this century or so, while it may seem insignificant compared to the thousands of years of history 
that are wrapped around it, I think are essential to understanding the crazy world of Western history, these 120 years. Now, if you look at the 120 years as too short of a time frame to accomplish all of this, think of it as think of it this way. 1907 was the 120 year mark of the United States. We are only a few generations removed from that time now. America in 1907 stretched from sea to shining sea and was already manifesting its destiny, utilizing gunboat diplomacy with the Japanese, defeating old world power Spain in a war, inventing the airplane, the automobile, the game of baseball, and our greatest contribution, musicians in New Orleans were putting the finishing touches on the musical art form, jazz. It's not an exaggeration to say that the U.S., only 120 years into its existence, was on the cusp of becoming a world superpower. So yeah, I think a lot can happen in 120-odd years. The martyrs were and are a big part of the origin story of Western Christianity, but at this point they offer little help to our understanding of what was going on pre-council, pre-martyr Gaul. Now for that first question, what about the soul? This is where it gets interesting. If I had been asked before starting this episode, I would have said that somehow Jesus got a hold of some Greek text and learned all about Greek version of the soul. There is some circumstantial evidence as Jesus has a chunk of time where his history is lost and he lived in a land where he had access to such information. But if you look at the official document, the Bible, and take no other apocryphal sources into account, then there is a case to be made that Jesus never believed in a soul the way we do or were taught to believe. He most certainly did not believe in heaven, a place where his where this detached thing called the soul would travel to or access that promised eternal life. Now, some academics believe that Jesus believed and preached something that is very different from the idea of an immortal soul in a place called heaven altogether. Now, Professor Bart Ehrman believes that Jesus was more of a practitioner of the apocalypse view of things than of eternal bliss. When it came to the soul, Ehrman cites specific passages, like in Genesis, for instance, where it states that God breathed life into the inanimate corpse of Adam, thus giving life. Now, unless you think that breath means soul, then there is a problem. Now, some people do, of course, thinking that from a long time ago, someone must have gotten confused and really meant soul, but instead went with breath because those words rhymed or, you know, words are hard for ancient people. I don't know. For me, there's a difference between soul and breath. Anyway, he goes on to cite more examples of Jesus's beliefs, including what happens on Judgment Day and what he really meant by a kingdom on earth. Now, here's a hint. He meant it literally. It involves his dad coming back, breathing life into dead people, complete obliteration of the unchosen. But in all, there's no mention of heaven and nary even a mistranslation to construct an edifice of faith on what it comes to mean to have a soul. If this guy, Mr. Ehrman, is to be believed, the message concerning what happens when you die that was being communicated over these 120 or so years in Gaul was not one that involved a belief in a separate soul or a place called heaven, which, if it did, would just join all those other promised utopias that have occupied people's minds for eternity, but it didn't, not yet, and not in Gaul, not at this time in history. So if an immortal soul and promise of heaven wasn't the big idea that was being spread throughout Gaul, could it be that it was something far more mundane, but in the end, practical? If Christianity, at this point in its history, has yet to clearly define such core concepts as immortal soul in heaven, what were they talking about in those basilicas? Now, one thing could be they could be doing is working out the system of manners and behaviors they would come to rely on, and something akin to Confucianism, 
which established a system of behavior based on manners in China, dating some 400 years before Jesus. Now, it seems plausible that at the start, Christianity was far more about the real world than anything supernatural. Before the awards of everlasting life in a perfect place were not being promised, Christians in Gaul, far and away from the epicenter of Christian orthodoxy, in their bare basilicas, were establishing something equal parts Christian, Gallic, and a dash of Roman pragmatism thrown in for good measure. It seems hard to believe that this wouldn't be the case. I mean, the priest caste of Gaul had been emasculated and rendered insignificant, but the beliefs were still there. The rituals were still practiced. Across most of Gaul, in huts, cottages, and places of work, new ways of thinking of the old beliefs were taking shape. What this melting pot of belief looked like in practice is really hard to fathom. It's kind of like thinking what it must be like to breathe underwater. And even though we did it for like nine months when we were in our in our mom's womb, the concept is so foreign that most of us can't even conceive what it would be like to actually take that breath and not drown, right? So same basic idea. What it would be like to worship in the pre-council, pre-martyr, Gallic Christian world. You can pull some stuff out of it, like having some knowledge of the previous Gallic metaphysical system, you know, the Druidic one. And they work for the Gauls and sometimes with the Celts, but if, that gets confusing. So going forward, I'm just going to call them Gauls, right? So Druids believed in an animistic system, right? Making the most of their natural world around them. They had great reverence for trees, you know, oak and beech specifically. These Druids had a pantheistic structure to their system of gods involving river, sky, mountain, you know, those type of gods. They were into human sacrifice. They believed in at least in a very, very, very long-lasting soul. Uh, they sometimes, it's hard for me to find the word immortal, though I use it sometimes to communicate that. They didn't think the soul died. So I guess you can call that immortal. It is an influence that has seeped, that being the Druidic influence, that has seeped into our 21st century culture. Both the Celts and the Druidic priests of Gaul worship specific trees. These trees, the beech and the oak, were so revered that they remained an anchor to these ancient beliefs that still existed almost to this day. I mean, some of it even to this day. I mean, take the fairy trees of France. Now, a hundred years ago, according to Brentano, when he was writing his history of Gaul, an ancient fairy tree still stood in a place called La Palude, which he says still retained its pagan character. Now, you can stretch it out a little bit and say that this old religion has made its way to today, modern world, because there's a forest of beech trees in Bordeaux, which was back then Aquitania, that is called the Fairy Forest. Now, even like a show like Game of Thrones, you know, with the weirwood of the godswood, maybe that's Martin's homage to this timeless belief. Now, the pantheon of Gallic gods was based on where they lived. Now, there's no better example than the Gallic god Bellinus. He was, or is to some of you, uh, the god of thermal hot springs, and of the few moments when the sun breaks through and dawn's light hits the very top of the mountains. And I'm not making that up. <laughs> He's very specific with his job description. And, you know, of course, the Druids also were into human sacrifice. Now, I only mention this part because it does make it interesting to consider human sacrifice and the Druidic culture and martyrdom. I mean, if your culture is all about... Um, you know, killing people. And one of the things that the Druids did really well is kill people. You know, they hung them, drowned them, burned them, stoned them, flogged them, crucified them, uh, sewed them up in a bag and set it on fire, sewed it up in a bag and threw it in the river, sewed it up in a bag and trampled it with horses. They used torture in their ceremonies as it was common practice 
you know, if they needed to know which way to go, they were tied, dude up, and then slices back, and whichever way he writhed in pain is the way they went. So as a group, the Gauls already really like their ceremonies with the, on the grisly side of things. It's hard to not think that that had some influence on their willingness to be martyrs. Are we to believe that they immediately stopped this type of behavior once they started learning what it meant to be a Gallic proto-Christian? At the same time, if we are to entertain the idea of Christianity as a harbor in the storm, it kind of does make sense that this is exactly the type of behavior that needed to be stopped in order to start living like a Christian. Maybe that is what they were talking about in the Basilica. Now, when it came to philosophy, the Druids were definitely dualists, meaning they believed in a soul that is separate from the body. The Gauls pretty much universally believed in a more or less similar version of the soul as we do today. It was not part of the physical body. It could travel, and according to them, it could be brought back in another form or body. Now, most souls were connected to a special place like a home, a creek, a large stone, a tree, a hot spring, where they existed on the same plane as the gods that these places housed and cared for. There really was no belief in a heaven to speak of, but there were belief in a soul, and it was a strong one. Recall Julius Caesar's quote from earlier concerning how you couldn't keep a druid from droning on and on about the immortality of the soul and its ability to come back in another body. Even back in then, the Gauls were true believers. So for those first 120 years of Christian belief in Gaul, it was the Gallic people who brought to the faith the idea of the soul. There were, of course, Greek missionaries in Gaul, uh, they were also had a belief in the soul that meshed well with young Christianity. But even if there were a lot of Greeks in Gaul, they would still be dwarfed by the amount of local Christians that would be bringing a much more organic, connected soul to the table. Yes, the Greeks believed in the soul, but in a much more platonic form, sort of as a search for perfection. They didn't believe in the same type of soul as the Gauls, and the one they did believe in, they didn't believe in nearly as much as the Gauls did. To take a moment to add it all up, you got pre-council, pre-martyr, Gallic Christianity being a pretty mysterious thing that had to be such a mashup of old and new, ghastly and sublime, that it is basically incomprehensible to our modern sensibilities. It had time to germinate unmolested for over a century and start to drive roots into the fabric of the nation of France. And it was based on a wholly personalized version of Christianity that would last long into the future, much longer than any other place Christianity had been catching on, most certainly more so than what was happening east of Gaul. This is the crux of this episode, uncovering the beginnings of what made Galois' life so rife with passion and contradiction, faith, fraternity, liberty, monarchy. It really starts here, in those early years before the edicts of the orthodoxy began to codify and the, words, the world started to try to be a Pax Christiania, a house for the whole world to worship. Now, however, the ancient tribal differences were not wiped clean by the adoption of Christianity, as we have seen it actually only lead to more fractious relationships, more reason to feel that guy from across the river is a real douche. Heck, he's from a family of douches, the whole lot of them. Him and his rest of his pagey and tribe and pays, they're all douches. And now wouldn't you know it, he and his fellow douches also now do not believe in the Holy Ghost. What in the ever-loving fuck, right? Those douches are in need of some serious killverting, I tell you that. It's important because even though I've been using 120 years, the time roughly between the first missionaries in Gaul and when Gallic Christians were being martyred, but in reality, if you take the date of the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, as the beginning of the process of creating the Christian faith as we know it, 
then it was hundreds of years for Gaul to form and mold their version of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Now, once the actual official Christian doctrine begins to filter into Gaul after Nicaea, they were part of a process that was wholly separate. Again, remember those separate but concurrent movements of the lower class and the elite. Well, the lower class had the Christianity of the organic Gallic version. Now the elite were about to transfer or transform from Roman religion, state religion, to a Catholic one. These two systems would stay separate but concurrent. The fact that these two very similar but different enough ideological entities could exist in Gaul at the same time should make some sense up to this point. I hope that I've made clear that the lower classes of Gaul were the early adopters of this early Christianity. Equally clear, hopefully, is the idea that this newly minted biblical Christianity that was being disseminated out into the world, you know, Catholicism, under the ruling and priestly class who were being used to accomplish this task. These two worlds in Gaul were clearly defined, and they had also been used to clearly define the two competing versions of Christianity one that saw that being Gallic was the most important part of the faith. The land, the abundance that had been so long part of their world, was given new elucidation with a new belief in the goodness of man. The other version is the one we are much more familiar with. The version of Christianity would become the Catholic religion, and it would come to dominate the Western world like no other belief system before or since. This is important to Galois because he faced this very same choice that everyone in his country would face from now on. A choice from one system being a proud member of society, which is seen as an important part of the faith, or the other system where faith to the orthodoxy, to the church, came first before people and place. It is not an easy choice, and history is littered with the destruction and death left in the wake of this Gordian knot that has faced much of Western culture for 2,000 years. This is central to the story that we are telling because the conflict didn't start in 177 AD or 63 AD. It started way back in France, thousands and thousands of years ago, as competing tribes fought and fucked their way across Europe and back again. It is a conflict that will continue almost nonstop all the way through the fall of Rome, the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Age of Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, and right up through the 20th century. There were two different versions of Christianity now in Gaul after 325 AD. And in fact, there were many different factions in early Christianity, you know, Arian, Gnostic, Simonian. But I believe there are two main ones. This is the dynamic part of the dynamic force that is Christianity. It is not about faith as saving anyone or doing miracles or that stuff. It is really about the conflict that is created when two separate but powerful versions of belief attempt to coexist in Gaul because of the history of the country and the mistakes made by Caesar and the Roman leaders that followed. This, the Gallic version of Christian belief, was allowed to grow strong roots in Gaul. So when the shiny new version of Christianity came rolling into town, it didn't replace the earlier version of Christianity. Far from it. In those early days, the Catholic religion was still a religion of the elite. The pre-council Christianity was the faith of the people. Now this is so deliciously dialectic. The concepts exist somewhere in the field created when these two systems collide, creating the aforementioned dynamic force. And so now there's really only one more piece to the story of dynamic forces, that being the very thing that landed Galois in prison. Recall that he was first placed there for threatening the life of the king. The last part of the world of Galois' France is the story of royalty and how it developed its particularly French character. 
For now, at the beginning of Christianity's Western dominance, around 400 to 500 AD, Gaul is still dealing, as is with the rest of the world, with the fall of the Roman Empire. After the dust settles and all those religious factions we mentioned in Gaul will start to cleave themselves onto the strongest military they can find, and they will begin to duke it out over undisputed rule of Gaul. Now, out of this scrum will come the world of French nobility and one of the final dynamic forces that pushed and pulled Évariste Galois to his death.